Just Thinking with hosts Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, bringing you week-to-week cultural apologetics as well as social issues from a biblical worldview. This is Just Thinking. Let's think. We're back. It's another edition of the Just Thinking Podcast. I am Virgil Walker. And I am Daryl Harrison. What are you doing, Omaha? What's going on, man? What's going on? Well, speaking of, actually a whole lot, you know, and we uh, we just got, you know, a ton of reports this past weekend, uh, this this weekend uh, being Sunday, uh, March 17th, as we're recording this. Uh, I only timestamp it in that way just because it's kind of a, a, a point in time at which the area, the surrounding areas around Omaha have been dealing with flooding. Uh, and uh, just seeing a lot of a lot of folks kind of dealing with the issues related to that out of their homes. We had a big uh, event at our church, just trying to identify all of the folks who were who were who you know suffered loss of any kind. Fortunately, no loss of life, but just uh, loss of, of you know things that definitely can be replaced. But uh, but those are significant to those who've lost them nonetheless. So um, just walking through that, I, I want to just say I appreciate everyone who's reached out to me uh, via social media, Twitter, inbox, uh, what have you, to just check on me, knowing that, you know, you've you've tagged me as Omaha, so they kind of know me in that way. And so uh, when something happens in our area, that they, they make that connection. But my, myself, my family, uh, all are doing well. We're, we're fine, and we're trying to look for ways to be a resource for others. So appreciate, appreciate the love, appreciate the uh, – the prayer and uh, and uh, I would just ask to continue to be in prayer for those who are who are navigating this kind of challenging time. But that that's a that's a little bit about what's going on in our area. Well, we appreciate that update. I know folks, uh, especially on social media, have reached out to me on your behalf. Mm-hmm. You know, making sure you and your family uh, are okay uh, out there uh, during the flooding and whatnot. I guess uh, in my naivete. Uh, in my neck of the woods, being from the East Coast and 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 now here in uh, in California, you know, I can't recall a, a single instance where I've ever heard of it flooding anywhere in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was somewhat of an anomaly. You you were saying, right? It's, it's not it the really norm is. from a it really from is a yeah. weather pattern standpoint. So, uh, any do we want to chalk this one up to um, this whole weather system? Do we want to give uh, uh, Miss uh, Alexandria? Ocasio Cortez, <laughs> Miss Climate Change Queen, you want to give her credit for this one or nah. she 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 gets no credit, bro. She gets she gets <laughs> she gets zero she gets zero credits. She gets zero saves. She gets zero. I mean, we just no. She wins no. She loses all points. She gets no credit. Nothing. Nothing doing. Nah, but on a serious note, man, we'll be continuing to pray for you, your family, Omaha, especially everyone else there yeah, uh, out in Nebraska that's exposed uh, to these floods. And uh, again, you made a great point. Uh, material possessions can be replaced. I know that there is sentimental value in those mm-hmm. to a great degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, uh, that there was no loss of life um, is fantastic. Praise God for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we appreciate that. So. Uh, anyway, uh, here we are. We're back for another episode of the Just Thinking broadcast and the subject matter that we'll be dealing with in this episode, slavery reparations. Man, it, it, slavery you just, reparations. You just you just hitting them back to back because we did we just did 
you know, the theology of, of the biblical theology of socialism. And yep. as you as you mentioned, that particular episode, man, it's still I mean, folks are really downloading that one and kind of walking through it. We've gotten a lot of great feedback from that one. A lot of folks that were really uh, interested in, in, in what was shared in that space. What what was interesting to me about that in particular, and, and uh, you and I, I, I knew when we got we got done recording that particular episode, it was so lengthy, and uh, probably one of our longest. I didn't go back to check, but uh, it might be one of it, our longest. It, it may have been the lengthiest episode yeah. that we've done. I think we've done close to close to. I think we're at sixty six episodes, counting this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think of the 60 or more episodes that we've done, I think that one on a biblical theology of socialism may have been the lengthiest one and mm-hmm. by necessity. Mm-hmm. And so with, with that said, I, I, I just kind of w- wanted to reiterate for our listeners, especially those who are new to the just thinking, uh, broadcast, especially if, if you're hearing about us, maybe through another venue, I know Daryl has done a number of different interviews in different venues. And and I've had the opportunity from time to time to go and talk in different spaces and places. And maybe you've heard your favorite podcaster mention, you know, something about, about the podcast here. I I just want to, want to kind of tee up front. It really, from a standpoint of what we do and the nature of how we do what we do, it really takes quite a bit of time uh, to exegete not only the text of scripture, but the topics that we choose. When when Daryl selects a topic, man, he he doesn't waste time. He goes in, he goes in depth, and and then it requires of me to make sure that that I've I've taken the time to really research the issue, to go in depth in order in order to kind of match uh, and play the role that I play in this space. And so these 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 episodes, as we continue to kind of delve into, them, may take a little longer than than some of the earlier ones, if you've joined us maybe for episode number five or episode number 10, uh, you know, where, where maybe it took 50 minutes or 40 minutes. Uh, these are, these are taking a little bit longer because we're really delving into the subject matter that, that, that requires that level of time, energy, and effort. And we want to be incredibly thorough. Anything you want to add to that, Daryl? Now you said that very well, Omaha. And again, I think for the majority of our listeners, they come to expect that, when they tune into an episode of the Just Thinking broadcast, they're going to be tuning into uh, a, a podcast that is committed to exegeting, as you said, not just the scripture, but the topic itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, you made a great point. Uh, exegeting an issue takes time. It takes time to do that. And I think the the vast majority of our listeners appreciate that we do that because we're not just behind these microphones, uh, you know, for the fun of it. Uh, you and I both have a conviction that we want to honor God every time we sit down to record an episode. Uh, so, you know, after, after my having to take a couple months off to get settled in out here in California, you know, we've, we've come back and picked up right where we left off. I mean, we Mm -hmm. did, we, we, normally the topics we tackle, uh, are very serious topics, uh, right? So we've done sexual sin in the church. Mm-hmm. We've done uh, the Born Alive Act. And then last week we did the episode on socialism, which, wow, as we as we record this episode, that one episode on socialism has been downloaded almost 3,000 times. Wow. And that was just last week, okay? Yeah. So that was just last week. So we praise God, not 
for ourselves, but that folks are finding that episode um, beneficial, informative, edifying, encouraging, mm. educational, all those things, uh, because all the topics that we address, we address them because they are, how, how should I put it, so dangerous to the church. Mm. They're so dangerous to the church. And the episode that we're talking about, the topic rather that we're talking about in today's episode is no different. This is sadly a very divisive issue within evangelicalism, especially in America, this issue of slavery reparations. Now, mm-hmm. I want to go ahead and begin this episode uh, someone out, somewhat rather somewhat outside of the box, but not really outside of the box. So, Virg, I know you're familiar with what the term slave narrative is. Mm-hmm. You know what a slave narrative is, but for those who may be listening who are not familiar with that term, Let me explain what a slave narrative is. A slave narrative is exactly what the term, what you think a term like that means. It is a verbatim, is a documented either in writing or recording, a documented verbatim, and I emphasize verbatim, narrative from actual slaves Mm -hmm. about what it was like to be a slave. These are not second, third, or fourth fourth person accounts. These are first person accounts that are documented either in writing or recording. So, uh, for instance, you may be able to go to the Library of Congress and uh, listen to albums, actual vinyl albums of former slaves in their own voice Mm -hmm. recording these narratives. Well, I want to start this episode of the Just Thinking broadcast uh, on this issue of slavery reparations by reading three accounts, three separate slave narratives from one of my favorite collections of slave narratives. I've read dozens of slave narratives, Mm -hmm. dozens. But my favorite collection of slave narratives are found in a book by Dr. Julius Lester. Julius Lester wrote a book years ago, wrote a sort of collection of slave narratives, which he titled To Be a Slave. You can get the book on Amazon via Kindle paperback. Um, If you're like me, if you're old school like me, I like to have a hard copy book in my hands because I like to mark it up, make notes, things of that nature. But my favorite collection of slave narratives is the book by Julius Lester. It's simply titled To Be a Slave. Mm. And I thought it only proper to read a few of these uh, narratives from Dr. Lester's book to help establish the foundation, if you will, of what we're going to be discussing in this episode of the Justing and Broadcast on slavery reparations. So I'm going to take a moment here to read three narratives and what our listeners need to understand. And this is why I emphasize that slave narratives are verbatim accounts. So you're going to hear as I read these narratives, you're going to hear me read them as they were written, as they were said by these individuals who were formerly slaves. So as you listen to these, no, I'm not mispronouncing. I'm not making grammatical mistakes. This is how these individuals spoke. Okay, they were uh, uh, not formally educated. Um, They used the best possible grammar they possibly could 
Okay, so please understand that you may hear some terms that will make you uncomfortable. But I think that's necessary in order to appreciate the context of what we're going to talk about here. So let me go ahead and start with the first narrative. This is from a, a former slave. Her name is Nancy Williams. And this is as it's recorded in the book, The Negro in Virginia. OK, this is Nancy Williams. She says, never knew who Massa done sold. I remember one morning, old white man rode up in a buggy and stopped by a gal named Lucy that was working in the yard. He say, come on, get in this buggy. I bought you this morning. Then she begged him to let her go to tell her baby and husband goodbye. But he say, no, nah, get in this buggy. Ain't got no time for crying and carrying on. I started crying myself because I was so scared he was going to take me too. But old Aunt Sissy, whose child it was, went to Massa and told him he was a mean, dirty nigger trader. Old Massa was sore, but ain't never said nothing to Aunt Sissy. Then Hindley, what was next to the youngest of her seven children, got sick and died. Aunt Sissy ain't sorrowed much. She went straight up to old Massa and shouted in his face, Praise God! Praise God! My little child is gone to Jesus. That's one child of mine you ain't never gonna sell. A second narrative I want to read from the Negro in Virginia as recorded in Julius Lester's book to be a slave quote major Ellison bought me and carried me to Mississippi I didn't want to go they examine you just like they do a horse they look at your teeth and pull your eyelids back and look at your eyes and feel you just like you was a horse he examined me and said where's your mother I said, I don't know where my mother is, but I know her. He said, would you know your mother if you saw her? I said, yes, sir. I wouldn't know her. I don't know where she is, but I would know her. They had done sold her then. He said, do you want us to buy you? I said, no, I don't want you to buy me. I want to stay here. He said, we'll be nice to you and give you plenty to eat. I said, no, you won't have much to eat. What do you have to eat? He said, lots of peas and cotton seed and things like that. But I said, no, I'd rather stay here because I get plenty of pot liquor and bread and buttermilk. And I don't want to go. I got plenty. I didn't know that that wasn't lots to eat. He said, well, I have married your mistress and she wants me to buy you. But I still said, I don't want to go. They had done sold my mother to Mr. Armstrong then. So he kept talking to me and he said, don't you want to see your sister? I said, yes, but I don't want to go there to see her. They had sold her to Mississippi before that. And I knowed she was there, but I didn't want to go. I went on back home. And the next day, the old white woman whipped me. And I said to myself, I wish that old man had bought me. I didn't know what he bought. I didn't know he had bought me anyhow, but soon they took my cotton dresses and put them in a box and they combed my hair. And I heard them tell me that Mr. Ellison had done come after me and he was in a buggy. I wanted to ride in the buggy, but I didn't want to go with him. So when I saw him, I had a bucket of water on my head and I set it on the shelf and just ran as far as I could for the woods. 
they caught me and Aunt Bet said, honey, don't do that. Mr. Ellison done bought you and you must go with him. She tied my clothes up in a bundle and he had me sitting up in the buggy with him and we started to his house here. I had to get down to open the gate and when I got back up, I got behind in the little seat for servants and he told me to come back and get inside. But I said I could ride behind up to the house and he let me stay there, but he kept watching me. He was scared I would run away because I had done run away that morning, but I wasn't going to run away because I wouldn't know which way to go after I got that far away. Then lastly, again, from the Negro in Virginia, quote, I remember once when we was going to have a meeting down in the woods near the river. Well, they made me the lookout boy. And when the patty rollers come down the lane past the church, you see, they was expecting that the niggers going to hold a meeting that night. Well, sir, they tell me to step out from the woods and let them see me. Well, I does. And the patty rollers that was on horseback come a chasing after me, just a galloping down the lane to beat the band. Well, I was just ahead of them. And when they got almost up with me, I just ducked into the woods. Of course, the patty rollers didn't stop so quick and kept on round the bed. And then there came a screaming and a crying that would make you think that all hell done bust loose. Them old patty rollers done writ plumb into a great line of grapevines that the slaves had stretched across the path. And these vines tripped up the horses and throw the old patty rollers off in the bushes. And some done landed mighty hard because they was a limping around and cussing and calling for the slaves to come and help them. But them slaves got plenty of sense. After that, old patty rollers got wise and used to tie their horses and come creeping through the woods on foot until they find where this meeting was going on. Then they would rush in and start whipping and beating the slaves unmerciful. All this was done to keep you from serving God. And do you know some of them devils was mean and sinful enough to say, if I catch you here serving God, I'll beat you. You ain't got no time to serve God. We bought you to serve us. Unquote. Wow. Any thoughts on those, Virgil? Wow. Wow. Man, I'm so glad you started there. So and on so many levels. And uh, man, I, I, I'm going to let you explain uh, to the listener what your thoughts were and why you did that. But I'm so, so glad that you did. I, I think any conversation about reparations, it's important to lay that foundation. And and I don't know where else people are going to get that kind of a, a, a exposure to treatment like that as far as uh, as, as far as getting a chance to hear slave narrative uh, than, than they just did just now on the Just Thinking podcast. So appreciate you doing that, man. Thanks, man. I wanted to read those narratives, Omaha, for two reasons primarily. Okay. Number one, because I have a deep appreciation for slavery and the human suffering that it causes. I say causes as opposed to caused, past tense, because slavery is still alive and well in the world today by virtue of our being congenital sinners. So slavery is not a past reality. It's going on in many parts of the world right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. So number one, I want to read those narratives because I have a deep appreciation for slavery and the human suffering that it causes. Reason number two, I wanted to read those narratives to help dispel 
the stereotypical notion that social conservatives such as you and me have no such appreciation for slavery and the suffering it causes. That's good. That couldn't be any farther from the truth. Case in point, I just want to mention as an aside, I have more books in my personal library on slavery than on any other subject with the exception of theology. I've read more over my lifetime on slavery than any other subject with the exception of theology. Now, having said that, and with those sobering words of those first-person accounts of what slavery was actually like, with those sobering words in the back of our minds, I want to set the stage for the topic we'll be discussing here in this episode of the Justing and Broadcast, which is slavery reparations. I want to set the stage for that topic by quoting from the esteemed economist and scholar Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell, from his book, Discrimination and Disparities. I want to quote Sowell from the book, Discrimination and Disparities, because I think Sowell's words are quite appropriate here in helping establish the context for the conversation we're about to delve into, especially in light of the narratives that I just read from. So listen to what Thomas Sowell says in Discrimination and Disparities. Quote, the confining of discussions of slavery to that of blacks held in bondage by whites is just one of the many ways in which the agendas of the present distort our understanding of the past, forfeiting valuable lessons that an unfiltered knowledge of the past could teach. At a minimum, the worldwide history of slavery. Don't miss that, folks. Sowell said the worldwide history of slavery should be a grim warning for all people and for all time against giving any human beings unbridled power over other human beings, regardless of how attractively that unbridled power might be packaged rhetorically. Sowell goes on. Edmund Burke said more than two centuries ago, quote, in history, a great volume is unrolled for our instruction, drawing the materials of future wisdom from past errors and infirmities of mankind, unquote. But he warned also, Sowell said, he says, Burke warned also that the past could also be a means of, quote, keeping alive or reviving dissensions and animosities, unquote. I want to repeat that last part because Burke, Edmund Burke is absolutely right, as Sowell quotes him. Burke says, the past could also be a means of keeping alive and reviving dissensions and animosities. Now, I want to begin our discussion by attempting to dispel a myth. That is the myth that only white people, more specifically white Europeans, own slaves. That is a myth that I want to try to dispel here uh, as we get started with this conversation on reparations. After all, slavery is what this whole idea of reparations is so inextric inextricably tethered to. Is it not, Omaha? You can't yes. talk about reparations without talking about slavery. Absolutely. So those two are inextricably tied together. So let's start there, shall we? Let's start with slavery. Now, 
I want to begin by sharing a personal story with our listeners. I am descended from an ethnic people known as the Balanta. That's spelled B-A-L-A-N-T-A, Balanta. The Balanta are the largest ethnic group in Guinea-Bissau, West Africa, representing more than one quarter of the population of Guinea-Bissau. The word Balanta is translated in English, those who resist, those who resist. Now, the Bolanta can be divided into four subgroups, three of which are Bolanta Kentohi, Bolanta Ganja, and Bolanta Brasa, the largest of which are the Bolanta Brasa. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, archaeologists believe that the people who became the Bolanta migrated to present day Guinea Bissau in small groups between the 10th and 14th centuries AD. The Bolanta practice indigenous spiritual customs and rites. So in Bolanta society, God is believed to be very far away. And communication with the Almighty is established through their synergistic spiritual practices and traditions. Now in Bolanta, although Catholicism has been partially accepted among them, Islam is a strong influence and is practiced along with their unique forms of spirit worship. So there's this synergism going on between their traditional spiritual rituals, a little bit of Catholicism and a lot of Islam among the Balanta people in uh, Guinea-Bissau. Wow. Now, Balanta is a Bak that is spelled B-A-K. Balanta is a Bak language of West Africa spoken by the Balanta people. Balanta is divided into two languages, Balanta Kentohi and Balanta Ganja, both of which are separate languages and are distinct from one another. Now, the Balanta are an agricultural people. They use a tool that is called a kabinde, K-E-B-I-N-D-E. It's called a kabinde. In the Balanta language, that's what it's called. That tool is used to prepare the soil for planting crops, primarily rice. That the Balanta people were rice harvesters is of great significance to helping set the context of what we're going to talk about in this episode of the Just Thinking Broadcast. The reason I say that is because I want to cite a book by Dr. Walter Hawthorne. The book is titled Planting Rice and Harvesting Slaves. Planting Rice and Harvesting Slaves, Transformations Along the Guinea-Bissau Coast. In this book, Dr. Hawthorne points out that the Balanta people, that is, my people, were not victims of the transatlantic slave trade, as myth would have you believe about pretty much every black person who is of African descent. But to the contrary, the Balanta were willing participants in the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. Okay? Now, I want to quote from Dr. Hawthorne's book, planting rice and harvesting slaves. Quote, Bolanta communities conducted raids on distant strangers for captives, many of whom they traded to area merchants who exported them to America as slaves, for which they received valuable imports, especially iron, deposits of which were lacking on the coast. Iron gave Bolanta the ability to forge strong defensive weapons and to step up agricultural production. With iron-reinforced tools, 
Balanta adopted and developed sophisticated paddy rice farming techniques, producing surpluses of food that fed not shrinking but growing populations. By planting rice and harvesting slaves, politically decentralized Balanta defended and provided for their communities. Slaves served this purpose as agricultural laborers, as wives or concubines, and as commodities that could be traded abroad for imported goods. Let me read that one again. Slaves among the Balanta served this purpose as agricultural laborers, as wives or concubines, and as commodities that could be traded abroad for imported goods. The sale of some slaves, Hawthorne says, the sale of some slaves brought income, and the retention of others brought labor for a host of endeavors, unquote. Hmm. So, as it relates to this issue of slavery reparations, it stands to reason that we must first contextualize the issue by starting at the beginning with slavery, not only in terms of its genesis in America with specific regard to black people, which dates back to only the early 15th century, but many hundreds of years earlier in Africa. Now, case in point, the European transatlantic slave trade was preceded by many centuries by another even more brutal slave trade, one that in some parts of the world is still continuing today. Now, this is thoroughly documented in a book by Dr. Peter Hammond. The book is entitled Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam, The Historical Roots and Contemporary Threat. Now, I want to read a somewhat lengthy quote from Hammond's book, but this is necessary in an effort to add to the context of the topic we're discussing on reparations. Hammond, Hammond writes this in Slavery, Terrorism, and Islam. Quote, while much has been written concerning the transatlantic slave trade, surprisingly little attention has been given to the Islamic slave trade across the Sahara, the Red Sea, and the Indian Ocean. While the European involvement in the transatlantic slave trade to the Americas lasted for just over three centuries, the Arab involvement in the slave trade has lasted 14 centuries, and in some parts of the Muslim world are still continuing to this day. A comparison of the Islamic slave trade to the American slave trade reveals some interesting contrasts. While two out of every three slaves shipped across the Atlantic were men, the proportions were reversed in the Islamic slave trade. Two women for every man were enslaved by the Muslims. While the mortality rate for slaves being transported across the Atlantic was as high as 10%, the percentage of slaves dying in transit to the Trans-Sahara and East African slave trade was between 80 and 90%. While almost all the slaves shipped across the Atlantic were for agricultural work, most of the slaves destined for the Muslim Middle East were for sexual exploitation as concubines in harems and for military service. While many children were born to slaves in the Americas, and millions of their descendants are citizens in Brazil and the United States to this day, very few descendants of the slaves that ended up in the Middle East survived. While most slaves who went to the Americas could marry and have families, 
Most of the male slaves destined for the Middle East slave bazaars were castrated, and many of the children born to the women were killed at birth. It is estimated that possibly as many as 11 million Africans were transported across the Atlantic, 95% of which went to South and Central America, mainly to Portuguese, Spanish, and French possessions. Only 5% of the slaves went to the United States. However, at least 28 million Africans were enslaved in the Muslim Middle East, as at least 80% of those captured by Muslim slave traders were calculated to have died before reaching the slave markets. It is believed that the death toll from the 14 centuries of Muslim slave raids into Africa could have been over 112 million dead. When added to the number of those sold in the slave markets, the total number of African victims of the East African slave trade could be as high as 140 million people. Wow. Unquote. Now, the reason I took the time to cite those two sources, Hawthorne and Hammond, the reason I took the time to do that to the degree that I did, of detail, to the degree of detail that I did, is because if we're going to have an intellectually honest conversation about reparations, that can happen only if we are willing to have an equally intellectually honest conversation about slavery. Because slavery is why the vast majority of pro-reparationists are pro-reparations. To discuss the one, reparations, and not the other, slavery, or conversely, to discuss the latter, reparations before the former slavery is to render the entire conversation moot and unnecessary. The truth is there is a lot of ignorance out there about slavery, particularly as it relates to its origins in America. Now I say that because much of what is being said about slavery in America, especially by those who argue in favor of paying reparations for slavery is rooted in a faulty timeline about when slavery began in this nation and who was involved in it. Mm -hmm. For the most part, people's chronology of slavery in America starts with the 1860s and the Civil War era. Mm -hmm. Maybe one in 10 people you ask will accurately say that slavery in America began in the 1600s when the first African arrived in Jamestown, Virginia. But for all the animosity and vitriol being aimed at white evangelicals today and white people in general for their role in slavery in America, the truth is black people not only played a significant role in facilitating the sale and transporting of slaves from Africa to America, but also in owning them after they were here. Mm. <clears throat> Listen to this from author Larry Koger. K-O-G-E-R. Larry Koger from his book, Black slave owners black slave owners Koga writes this quote when the first federal census of 1790 was taken the number of free colored slaveholders was quite small but it gradually grew to a modest size in 1790 the community of slaveholding colored persons stood at 59 slave masters who held 357 bondsmen Within 10 years, their numbers had declined to 45 slave owners. However, the number of slaves held, the number of slaves held by the colored persons increased to 414. 
1820, the number of colored slaveholders began to grow significantly. The growth of the community of black slaveholders continued for the next 20 years. Between 1820 and 1830, the community of Afro-Americans who owned slaves increased by 95.6%. The rapid growth in the community of black slaveholders can be attributed to several factors. After 1820, free blacks who purchased kinsfolk or friends could not emancipate their loved ones without the approval of the state assembly, which seldom granted such manumissions. Consequently, the black slaveholders who normally would have freed their slaves were forced to hold their loved ones as chattel Mm. and report their kinsfolk as slaves to the census takers. Thus, the normal process of decline through manumissions was no longer a factor. Furthermore, the period from 1820 to 1840 witnessed the economic development of the free black community. Mm. Many persons of color acquired the capital to purchase slaves. These new slaveholders were not related to their slaves by the bond of kinship. They bought these slaves to be used as laborers, Mm. unquote. So let me go ahead and put this notion to rest because I know there are those who are listening to this episode of the Just Thinking Broadcast and, and they're saying to themselves, wait, hold on a second. Uh, black people didn't really own slaves the way white people own slaves. They, right. they, black people own slaves as a, in a way to protect their family members and, and loved ones. Oh, no, right. no, 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 <clears throat> right. no, no. There was some of that. And I just cited that from Larry Coger. Yeah, there was some of that. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of black slave owners owned them as laborers, as we just read from Koger. Koger says this, these new slave owners were not related to their slaves by the bond of kinships. They bought these slaves to be used as laborers. So let's just go ahead and put this stereotypical myth to rest mm. that only white people own <clears throat> slaves. Mm-hmm. Omaha, you got any thoughts on this? This is this has been just an incredible process as you've i mean we talked about it up up front it it takes time to exegete this topic it takes time to really unpack what all is there and uh man you've done a fantastic job just kind of opening opening the lens and examining the myths and and i just think for everybody that's listening this this is important to cover i think it begins with hearing the the narrative um of of slaves themselves and what they walk through and understanding the tragedy and, and, and challenge that they, that they navigated the, the horror of, of chattel, of what chattel slavery really looked like and was about from their, from their own mouths, from their own accounts. I think it's important to start there. I think it's important for us to examine with a full lens, every aspect of what this, of what the issue was to the point you made most believe that only whites were to blame for, for chattel slavery, you know, and going back to the issues that you raised uh, in with regard to Africa, uh, the African participation from a, from from those who were Islamic uh, and and had a desire to see uh, to 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 take advantage of of blacks to blacks in Africa that benefited from the sale uh, and trade of human beings. We need to count. We need to account for everyone's involvement uh, in order to know how to appropriately and fairly uh, proceed uh, regarding any remuneration. 
I think that's I think that's critical. One of the issues that you raise is something that was eye opening to me uh, as I read, you know, Dr. Thomas. So you, you referenced him uh, earlier. And I think the first book that I ever read was his was one called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. I'm sure you yep. probably read that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. First book, first book of his that I ever read. And then the book uh, he highlighted and he didn't do this in any depth because he does this in greater depth in, in the in the in the newer book that you mentioned. Uh, but he talks about the impact of slavery around the world. Uh, this was the first time for me uh, that, and this may be the first time for many uh, who are who are listening to this podcast. This was the first time for me to put into any context the impact of the sin of slavery, both mm-hmm. here in the United States and abroad. And mm-hmm. so, as you took the time to unpack that, it may be for some the very first time that they're hearing some of these myths that have been carried on for such a long period of time being addressed uh, and, and, and debunked. And so I think, I think that's important as we're going to, I know, I know we're going to discuss this at a later point, but, uh, but soul does a great job in his books of explaining how myopic our views of slavery are, uh, especially when we think about the solutions uh, that we want to offer uh, with regard to these. Some of these issues are, are really only locally instituted and really short-sighted because if the, if the logic behind them were extracted uh, around the world, the, the process of handing money back and forth to one another regarding issues of slavery becomes a, a pointless exercise in futility. I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, I totally agree. And if, if our listeners re- recall just a couple of minutes ago, you know, I began at the top of this episode with a quote from Dr. Soul uh, from his book, Discrimination and Disparities, where he mm-hmm. referred to slavery as having a worldwide history. Absolutely. As, I mean, that, slavery, that was that, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I'm just going to I'm just going to say slavery is worldwide. Absolutely. It was worldwide. It is worldwide. So Soul though if you read that it may seem sort of a sort of a subtle innocuous innocuous uh way to say it but no it's not innocuous this is very significant soul describes slavery as having a worldwide history to your mm-hmm. point omaha mm-hmm. absolutely it's interesting to me that the, the last thing that i'll mention uh that you talked about the issue of black slave owners it's almost never discussed or, or it's put into the category of, of myth when it's brought up as a challenge to those advocating reparations. And whether it's black slave owners or black involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, the desire by, by many is just to minimize or mitigate the issue. Uh, and, and it's almost always apparent in their, in their rebuttal to, to what you, what you share about, about the topic or subject. And if, if they don't regulate the issue to myth, you can count on them to maximize what they believe to be the torturous horror of chattel slavery as, as something mm-hmm. that's never been repeated anywhere on the earth, except for Bingo. here in, in, in America. And exactly. Uh, I'm not trying to minimize chattel slavery. I'm simply saying that most reparations advocates seem to desire to play on the emotions of others while acting as if as if humanity has never before seen the level of depravity until they reach the shores of the United States. Man, that's an excellent point. Excellent point. Where's the Hammond B3 right about now? <laughs> you know, I, Omaha, the, 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 uh, the Hammond B3 is now probably the most famous musical instrument within our listening audience within right, the right. purview of our listening audience right now <laughs> and and the just thinking broadcast is listened to all over the world yes all yes. over the world yeah. uh you know ironically you know with the tragedy i'll just say this as an aside for a second with the tragedy that recently occurred in new zealand 
mm-hmm. with the terrorist shooting of almost 50 people lost their lives there as a result of that shooting. Uh, the last data that I saw around the Just Thinking podcast with respect to our uh, global outreach, we had 250 downloads from New Zealand. Wow. 250 downloads of the podcast from New Zealand. So our hearts, wow. uh, our prayers to the Lord definitely go out uh, to our listeners uh, down under. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, great point about the myopic view of slavery, especially here in America. And that's why I wanted to point out most people's chronology of slavery goes back only to the 1860s. Right, right. Uh, you may find remotely one who may go back to the 1600s, mm-hmm. maybe, mm-hmm. but that's that's very rare. Okay, so th- this this isn't about numbers, but my taking the time to uh, sort of bring the Islamic slave trade into four here is to put the American slave, the, sorry, the transatlantic slave trade in the context. context. Yeah, because most people they just default to the transatlantic slave trade and absolutely no zero right about the islamic slave trade which dwarfs absolutely when you look at the numbers it's unbelievable when you, it absolutely dwarfs yeah. the yeah. Tra- transatlantic slave trade yep. dwarfs it now with all that we've just covered as background that was just background listeners okay <laughs> we're just getting started With all that as background, let's get down to the basics of the topic we're discussing on this week's episode of the Justin Broadcast, namely reparations, the R word, reparations. Mm -hmm. Now, first, before we do that, though, we need to ask and answer the question, what are reparations? What actually does the word reparations mean? Well, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the term reparations is defined as the act of making amends, offering expiation, or giving satisfaction for a wrong or injury incurred. Okay? Reparations is defined as the act of making amends, offering expiation, or giving satisfaction for a wrong or injury incurred. Now, personally, Omaha, I like that definition. I especially like the de- the part of the definition that says it, it, it means offering expiation. Mm-hmm. I like that, offering expiation, because expiation is a biblical concept. Mm-hmm. It's a biblical concept. Mm-hmm. In biblical terms, expiation has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. Mm. Okay. Expiation in biblical terms has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. We see this clearly spelled out by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, which I will now read from the non-Armenian standard Bible. (laughs) (laughs) I knew you'd get that in. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, talking about expiation. Paul writes this, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, that is God, made you alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he, that is Christ, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
having nailed it to the cross. That's Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Now, in the text we just read, in Colossians 2, 14, that phrase canceled out is the Greek word exalepho, exalepho, E-X-A-L-E-I-P-H-O, exalepho. That word translated means to obliterate, to erase, to wipe away, or to wipe out. Okay? It is a word that carries the idea of covering something with lime. So when a person comes to faith in Christ, not only are their sins forgiven by God, but God obliterates them. He completely wipes them out. He totally erases them from their record so as to never again be remembered against them. Mm -hmm. This picture is clearly described in Psalms 103.12. Psalm 103.12 in the Old Testament. Psalm 103.12 reads this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed. So far has he expiated our transgressions from us. Okay, now, the reason the idea this idea of expiation is germane to our conversation about reparations is that the truth is there are many professing Christians today who support paying reparations to black people because the atonement of Christ did not fully expiate or take away or propitiate or satisfy God's wrath for the sins of past generations of believers who may well have confessed and repented of the sin of slavery Mm -hmm. and that the payment of reparations is the only way that such expiation or propitiation can be fully consummated. Mm. They won't acknowledge this, okay? Now, they won't acknowledge this, of course, but it's essentially the rationale upon which their apologetic for reparations is based. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not enough for these evangelical reparationists, as I call them. It's not enough for them that Jesus Christ died on the cross to atone for sins like slavery. But now, others, namely white people, because, after all, White people were the only people to have ever owned slaves, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's not enough for them that Christ died on the cross to atone for sins like slavery. Now others have to atone for those sins as well by paying reparations, not to people who were actual slaves, but to people like you and me, Omaha, whose skin color happens to resemble those who were, in fact, slaves. Mm-hmm. Because not all dark-skinned people are descended from slaves, believe it or not. Right. Now, needless to say, such an attitude is fundamentally unbiblical. And I will defend that statement by looking to the scriptures. Now, let's look first at a couple of texts from the Old Testament, which, of course, I will be reading again from the non-Arminian Standard Bible. (laughs) Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Quote, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Each person shall be put to death for his own sin. Mm-hmm. That's Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Each person shall be put to death for his own sin. Mm-hmm. Second text, Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 through 22. Ezekiel 18, verses 19 through 22. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? 
when the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and then and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. Mm-hmm. The son will not bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. I'm sorry. The father will not bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him, Mm. will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness, which he has practiced. He will live. That's Ezekiel 18 verses 19 through 22. Now, God says from these texts that the, that for the person who repents of his sins, those sins will not be remembered against him. Mm. But there, but evangelical reparationists, you see, are in gross violation of that principle by doing exactly the opposite. They are remembering the past sins of others and holding those sins against their ancestors. Now, that Hebrew verb remember that we just read in Ezekiel 18.22 is the word zakar, Z-A-K-A-R, zakar. That word is translated to mean to recall to call to mind, to cause to remember, to keep in remembrance, to record, to mention, or to make a memorial. Okay, so that's the word remembering in in Ezekiel 18.22, the word zakar. That is exactly, remembering here is exactly what evangelical reparationists are doing. They Mm -hmm. are making a memorial of the sin of slavery so as to obtain from the government and even from some non-governmental entities and institutions, reparations for suffering they themselves never experienced. But to those individuals, I pose this question, okay? How would you like for God to treat your sin that way? You're asking a critical question. What would yeah, you a critical question in the context of what we just read in Ezekiel 18, 22, where God says for the person who practices righteousness and justice, justice that their sins will not, be remembered against them. But we have evangelical reparationists today who are doing that exact thing. They are remembering the sins of those in the past for the purpose of obtaining reparations from the government for suffering that they never, ever incurred. And I want to ask those folks a question. How would you like God to treat your sin that way? How would it be for you? How would it be for you to live each and every moment of each and every day being constantly reminded by a holy, righteous, and wrathful God of the sins you've committed against him? How would you like for God to memorialize your sins against him? You could not endure such an existence for five seconds of your life. You would be just as the psalmist said in Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? 
That's one of the most powerful rhetorical questions in all of Scripture. Mm-hmm. The answer, obviously, is no one could stand if yeah. God were to count our iniquities against us, if he were to remember our iniquities. No one could stand before God were he to remember our sins against us, not even evangelical reparationists. Mm. They could not stand either if God were to hold their sins and count their iniquities. They couldn't stand. Right. Now, we're, we're not already the case that much of evangelicalism is being caught up in this current wave of social justice, woke theology, and ethno-ecclesiology. We could actually stop right here, Omaha, because the overarching point is rather obvious at this juncture in our conversation. But that point is this. Scripture is clear that the atonement of Christ on the cross is a vicarious atonement, Mm. which is to say, which is to say it is accomplished by Christ on behalf of others, namely his elect, namely his elect. But scripture is also abundantly clear that the sins to which the vicarious atonement of Christ is applied are not vicarious. All right. So the, the atonement of Christ is vicarious, but the sins to which that atonement apply are not vicarious to suggest as if by proxy that a person must atone, whether in the form of reparations or some other material compensation for sins that he or she did not actually commit is both unbiblical and absurd. No one sins vicariously. (laughs) No one sins vicariously. So why should anyone be recompensed vicariously for offenses that were never committed against them in actuality? In biblical terms, sin is very specific and attributable. Conversely, so is any restitution that might be warranted as recompense for those sins, keeping in mind that all sin is primarily and ultimately against God. Mm-hmm. We should relieve you and me from thinking that we have any right to hold the sins of others against them. Thoughts, Omar? I love what you shared there. I, I, I'm always stealing terms from you, man. So evangelical reparationists is one that I'll have to put in my in in, in my my dictionary. But I, I think that's a wonderful term. Uh, for these folks, and 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 I think there's a distinction that you're making. I'll 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 wait to wait to make that point a bit later. But my thought here in this space is we're not even talking about the sins of these individuals. We're talking about the sins of their forefathers. Mm-hmm. And and in and in the case of many, we don't really even know if if their so-called forefathers actually participated exactly. in that sin. Right. We're making exactly. that we're making that assumption on the basis of the level of melanin or lack thereof in Bingo. someone's skin. Right. Exactly. So. So what what evangelical what, I, I you use the term earlier and I've, I've heard Dr. James White use the term evangelical racialists. Right. Yeah. What, yeah. what these what these racialists are demanding when they're demanding reparations, they're demanding it from everyone with a certain level of, of melanin count. Right. Right. And rather than because all of what you just what you just walked through is is an address of personal sin in the life of an individual. Right. 
and that's and, what it all boils down to. That's what it all boils down to. And 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 we've got to ask the question: where where have they where have they made this sin? But here's here's something here's something I thought about, man. As as we were kind of preparing, there, I wanted to run it by you because I can I can hear. I can hear the the voice of of social justicians and you know f- making the claim. You know what that that all sounds good, Daryl Virgil. That you guys you guys got, got it all put together, but but you got to recognize at the same time that sin also has temporal consequences, which must be addressed in the here and now. You know mm-hmm. that's I I can hear them making making that charge. Mm-hmm. I I go I go back to what I said earlier. Show me their sin, and we can lay it to their charge, <laughs> Bruh. Come on, verse. Right. Show Come me, on, show, show me their sin. Let's lay it to their charge. But if we're gonna go, if, we, if we're gonna reach back to what forefathers did, man, that's that's a that's a dangerous road to walk back down. It really is, right? I mean, what we're what we're really talking about is is is, and I know people couldn't imagine if you can imagine being brought up on charges today and demanding to pay retribution or reparations on behalf of like a great, great, great grandfather that did mm-hmm. something sinful to someone else in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, e- even worldly justice doesn't work that way. Hello, bruh. Come on, verse, bro. Where right? can you get a copy of that sermon? Where can I get a copy of that sermon? <laughs> you made a fantastic point though. You, you, when you said it's a dangerous road, that reminds me again of the quote that we opened up with from Dr. Soul. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sowell said that bringing up the past could also be a means of keeping alive or reviving dissensions and animosities. Absolutely. That's, that's Absolutely. why it's so dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so dangerous, man. That was an excellent point, uh, Omaha. Excellent point, bro. And listen, at the end of this episode, we're going to tell folks where they can get a copy of that sermon you just preached. Man, you better stop. You better Because look, because <laughs> look, I, I was, I was, I, I got home really quick and I was looking at, uh, I was, I was about to uh, post another video, man, of a dude tearing up an organ and saying, I'm just preparing for the show because I know Daryl getting ready to come with it. And I thought, well, I used that joke last week. I can't double up on the joke. So I'm going to ease up this week. So. <laughs> But, you know, getting back to what we were talking about, you know, what makes this whole notion of the government paying reparations for slavery to people who were never slaves so absurd is the principle of what I call sin by proxy. Mm. Now, sin by proxy is the unbiblical idea that the guilt of another person's presumed sin, as you just said, Omaha, they're making an assumption that somebody sinned. Mm-hmm. They're presuming that somebody sinned, in this case, just because they're white. Right. Sin by proxy is the unbiblical idea that the guilt of another person's presumed sin is somehow transferable to someone else that that person by proxy, so that that person by proxy is now obligated to atone for, for someone's presumed sin by virtue of, in this case, paying reparations. Mm -hmm. So it's like you said, Omaha, we don't even know if the person sinned or not. But this is so ridiculous. You're white, so you must have. Mm-hmm. Your forefathers and maybe your foremothers must have participated in slavery. I'm not white, so my forefathers and foremothers must not have participated in slavery. Mm-hmm. And if, if folks are listening now, if you were listening at the very beginning of the episode, I just proved that to be that latter argument to be totally ridiculous mm-hmm. because I come from a line of slave owners. I'm black. I come from a line of black African slave owners. 
So that logic that only white people own slaves and because my ancestors was were black, they couldn't possibly have owned slaves. That's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Your black ancestors did own slaves. They bought them and they made them serve them just like the black slaves who served white slave owners. Mm-hmm. Now, but this, this idea of sin by proxy is absolutely absurd. The idea that the guilt of another person's presumed sin can be transferred to someone else, that that, and that, that someone else must be made to atone mm. by proxy for the presumed sin of someone else. It's like you said, Virgil, show me their sin right. and we can have a conversation. Right. Now, if we look into the word of God, we will find universally objective principles that bear out that the idea of sin by proxy, particularly with regard to reparations, is unarguably an unbiblical, sinful, and God-dishonoring worldview. Now, I say that on the basis of a couple of texts in particular. I want to start with Leviticus chapter 5. Start in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Again, this idea of sin by proxy, that sin is transferable to someone else, is, is, is unbelievable. Leviticus chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise what whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass or an unclean beast, or the carcass of an unclean of unclean cattle, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort his uncleanness may be, with which he becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. So it shall be, when he becomes guilty in one of these, that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall confess that in which he has sinned. Mm -hmm. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. Now, What is my point here with this particular text? Leviticus 5, verses 1 through 6. My point here is not to exposit the Old Testament law concerning guilt offerings. That (laughs) is not the point of my bringing up this text. Mm -hmm. But what this passage does do is underscore my earlier point, that in Scripture we find the universal principle that sin is always specific to and attributable to an individual. Sin is never vicarious. Sin is never delegated. Sin is never accredited to somebody else. Never. 
And to drive that point home, I'm going to repeat the last part of the passage I just read in Leviticus. And as I do, I want you to listen closely to the number of personal pronouns God uses in outlining for us when and how this law of guilt offerings is to be applied. Quote, God is saying this, so it shall be when he, that's specific, that's attributable, he becomes guilty in one of these, that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering, so that the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. The point again here being that sin is both specific and attributable. It is a principle that is clearly evident in the words of Paul in Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself mm-hmm. to God. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I thought about this when you mentioned the uh, sin by proxy and uh, man, we dealt with this in a previous episode in great detail. In fact, I wanted to, I wanted to mention to our listeners uh, if, you know, if you haven't, if you've been with us just recently, I want to encourage you to go back and listen uh, in our archives, you can find it uh, under episode number twenty-four, uh, where where we we did a, a really you know, a full-on uh, unpacking of this idea and notion of of sin by proxy. It came it came. In fact, there I was looking back. It came right after. Uh, I, I should say I was going to say famous. I should say infamous. The infamous MLK fifty <laughs> conference episode. Oh yes, oh, yeah. Yes. That we have. We we got. I think that one in particular exposed us to a larger number of listeners. But I also want to take just a minute, man, to point people to your blog where, where people can find additional content on this subject and, and, and many others around this area. Go go check out the blog at justthinking.me. And, and this show, if, again, if you're new with us, is an extension. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the Just Thinking broadcast is an extension of, of Daryl's blog. And, uh, and, and I, I, I say that because I know Daryl is not going to promote himself, but there's some really wonderful content there uh, that will equip uh, and I believe edify people as they begin to try to wrap their minds around some of these issues from uh, a biblical perspective. And so I just wanted I just wanted to throw that in as we as as you mentioned the topic, a subject that we've covered in depth in the in, in, in a previous episode for others to check out. Yeah, that was a good mention, Omaha. I appreciate you doing that. So again, on this whole issue of sin by proxy and just the absurdity of that type of worldview, another Old Testament text that teaches against that principle, okay, teaches against the idea of sin by proxy, but actually teaches that sin is specific and attributable, not vicarious or delegated. Another text I want to look at is in 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Now in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David is on is running for his life, uh, literally. David is on the run from King Saul, but Saul's son Jonathan is aiding David in his efforts to escape King Saul's wrath. So we're going to read here in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1, and then I'm going to continue in 1 Samuel chapter 20, reading verses 30 through 32. Again, as trying to establish the biblical idea that sin is specific and attributable, not vicarious or delegated, such as the idea of sin by proxy. 1 Samuel 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, what have I done? 
what is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he is seeking my life? Now, before I continue in this text, Omaha, it is important to note that in Hebrew, the word before, all right? So we just read in 1 Samuel 20, verse 1, David asked the question, what is my sin before your father? That word before in Hebrew is translated against or upon, okay? So David is asking Jonathan rhetorically, no doubt, because David knows in his, in his heart that the answer to the question is nothing. David is asking, what is my iniquity and what is my sin against or upon your father that he is seeking my life? So when we read 1 Samuel 20, verse 1, and we see that word before, what is my sin before your father? David is actually asking Jonathan, what is my sin? What sin have I committed against your father? What sin have I done upon your father? Okay, continuing in 1 Samuel 20, verses 30 through 32. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Why should he be put to death? What has he done? So did you get that, Omaha? David is asking Jonathan, what is my personal sin that I have committed before or against your father? Mm -hmm. David is pleading with Jonathan to identify for him what specific sin, if any, he has committed actually, in actuality, against Saul so as to warrant Saul seeking his life. You see, this is the exact same question that I'm asking Black evangelical pro-reparationists today. Right. What specific sin has been committed against, against or upon you by white people that you are now seeking reparations from them? Mm. What have they done to you? You were never enslaved, so why should you deserve reparations? Right, right. I, I think, man, when you look at this, this is the this is the the context of the manner in which the conversation ha- has to be had. I mean, I think we have to have the conversation. I, I mean, I, I mentioned it earlier. You know, what what is it that we believe, quote unquote, white people, uh, you know, or any white person in particular has done to require uh, of them some some kind of. Uh, remuneration. I mean, what, what, what are we, what are we looking for? And what, and what's the, what's the end goal? Asking questions like, you know, what, what is, what, what has a white person done to oppress you specifically? Or what, what is anyone white currently doing to hold you back from achieving a goal? These kinds of questions, they really reveal that what we're discussing actually has, has nothing to do with what's currently happening. Uh, and and exactly. and that what and what we're really having a conversation about is something that's happened restore, historically uh that for the most part for the most part has already been rectified by current mm-hmm. law right exactly right one of the, one of the things that i've noticed though uh, over the course of the conversation man and and i and i'm hoping that our listeners have noticed it as well and and that is with regard to the issue man of reparations this entire conversation that we've had uh, ha- has really revolved around evangelical reparationists. 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've mm-hmm. coined the term, we've used the term, and 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 I and I know that I know my thought is it's important for us to raise this because the issue that we really have that I, and I and I'm certain uh, I, I definitely speak for myself. I'm sure you're able to speak well for, for yourself with regard to this. We recognize that those who who claim to hold a biblical worldview should have a similar lens by which we address this issue. Amen. And and Amen. and the rea- and the reality is if we if we if there's a term like evangelical reparationists, our claim and and what we've set up in this entire uh, podcast is that that's out of step with what we see in Scripture. Amen. That's contrary. That's antithetical to everything we read in Scripture. One of the things I noticed you you, you haven't yet addressed, and 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 we we may not. I mean, just depends on we we we've got a little time, and 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 I don't think that it really matters. You know, you you we never really talked about the the Democrats who are running or who who's saying what is this issue really has 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 to be addressed with those who claim to hold the biblical worldview first, because it, it is those of us who are in Christ who have the ministry of reconciliation. Amen. Amen. If we've got to, if we, if, if our lens is clouded with something that's, that's social justice oriented, we'll not be effective in seeing true change take place. That's such an excellent point, Omaha. And listen, it is speaking of antithetical, speaking of antithetical, you've heard the term race colored, rose colored glasses. Yes. It is, it is wholly unbiblical and inexcusable for a professing Christian to see the world through race-colored glasses. Wow. It's wholly unbiblical. It's inexcusable. You have no excuse, Christian, to see the world through race-colored glasses. Scripture is clear. It is objective. It is unambiguous that this idea of sin by proxy, the notion that you can transfer a supposed, assumed, presumed sin to somebody else, you can transfer that guilt to somebody else and then leverage Mm. that to get paid? I mean, come on. Right. I mean, that really makes me righteously indignant. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyone who professes to be a Christian that holds to that that kind of mindset, please, I want nothing to do with you. Nothing. Mm. I want nothing to do with you. That whole principle that 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 sin is specific, sin is attributable, is 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 solidly biblical. We find it again, right? We just we just pointed out in First Samuel chapter twenty. Let's go to the New Testament now. Let's go to the New Testament. Again, I'm arguing that sin is not proximate. It's not uh, vicarious. It's very specific and attributable. In John chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. John 19, verses 1 through 7. This is where Jesus is, again, standing before Pilate. This is his second Roman trial. Pilate says of Jesus twice in that passage in Romans 19, 1 through 7, I find no guilt in him, no guilt in him. Here again, we see the principle that sin is very specific and attributable. Now, lest anyone misquote me, we know that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. Mm -hmm. 
Christ lived a sinless life. Nevertheless, the point here is that Pilate himself determined that there was no basis in Roman law for the charges being lodged against Jesus, as he could find no objective evidence that Jesus was personally guilty of what he was being accused of. Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. So again, sin is always specific and personable. Personal. It is never vicarious or proximate. All right? And the same principle is what many pro-reparationist Christians get wrong, for example, about Zacchaeus in Luke 19, verses 1 through 8. This passage in Luke 19, verses 1 through 8, in Jesus' discourse with Zacchaeus, this passage is the go-to passage in the Bible Mm -hmm. for many evangelical pro-reparationists who try to offer an apologetic for why reparations for slavery is biblical. This is the text they always go to without fail. Luke 19, verses 1 through 8. And I want to look at that text because I would like to propose several reasons why evangelical reparationists are wrong about Zacchaeus as it relates to the issue of reparations. Mm -hmm. Luke 19, verses 1 through 8. I'm not going to read the text, but you can go to the text on your own, listeners, and read it, and then hold my commentary here up against what you just read. Mm. First of all, Here's, I have six reasons why evangelical reparationists are wrong about Zacchaeus uh, as a model for biblical reparations, a biblical model for reparations. Number one, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, not a slave owner. Okay, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was not a slave owner. Therefore, whatever restitution that would have been warranted would have had to have been in accordance with the specific sin Zacchaeus would have committed in the carrying out of his duties as a tax collector. I want to say that again. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was not a slave owner. So whatever restitution that would have been warranted by Zacchaeus would have had to have been in accordance with the specific sin he would have committed in the carrying out of his duties as a tax collector. We know this from Luke chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, which reads, And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, And they said to him, that is John the Baptist, teacher, what shall we do, parenthetically, to be saved? Teacher, what shall we do? And John the Baptist said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Now, was that principle, to collect, collecting more, the tax collectors collecting more than they were ordered to, it was that principle that Zacchaeus was known to have violated among the people, which is why in Luke 19, 7, the people described him as a sinner. Okay, so reason number one that evangelical reparationists are wrong about Zacchaeus is that he was a tax collector. He wasn't a slave owner, and any restitution that would have been warranted from him would have been determined up against any sin that he committed in carrying out his job as a tax collector. All right, number two, Zacchaeus's sin was personal, not proximate. His sin was personal, not proximate. In verse 8, Zacchaeus says, and if I have defrauded anyone, I. His sin was personal. It was not proximate or vicarious. Reason number three, Zacchaeus' volitional offer of restitution. We need to keep that in mind. His offer of restitution was volitional. 
Zeus, mm. Zacchaeus's volitional offer of restitution was the result of conversion, not coercion. Man, that's really good. Where my Hammond B three at Omaha? That's I yeah, it, it right there, bro. That's really really good. Zacchaeus's offer of restitution was volitional, and it was the result of conversion, not coercion. Mm-hmm. Reason number four. The restitution Zacchaeus offered would have come from his own personal possessions, not someone else's. I'm, I got to I got to go tune up my ham and B three. Well, go and tune it up, man. I got you. I got your back. I, I, go I, I got to tune this up, bro. This is this is good stuff. Reason four: the restitution Zacchaeus offered would have come from his own personal possessions, not someone else's, such as the government. Zacchaeus said. The kid said, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. He didn't say half of the government's possessions. He didn't say half, I want half of that white person's possessions. Mm-hmm. He said, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. So his restitution would have come from his own personal possessions. Reason number five, the restitution Zacchaeus offered was specific and applicable only to those who had actually been defrauded by him. That's good. The restitution Zacchaeus offered was specific and applicable only to those who had actually been defrauded by him. He said, if I have defrauded. Now, to to bring that into contemporary terms with respect to what we're talking about today, See, this statement cannot be said of anyone today. Any black, no black person can say, can accuse any white person today of having been enslaved. So that any, no white person can say, if I have enslaved anyone, mm-hmm. I will make it right. Mm-hmm. That, that's not an argument because that doesn't, that's not a reality today in America. Okay, so again, the restitution Zacchaeus offer was specific and applicable only to those who had actually been defrauded by him. And that would have been, that would have had to have been objectively determined lastly number six only those of whom it could be objectively proven to have been defrauded by Zacchaeus would have qualified to partake of his volitional offer to give back four times as much to them okay only those um, of whom it could be objectively proven Mm -hmm. to have been defrauded by Zacchaeus would have qualified to partake of his offer to quote give back four times as much. We see that in verse eight. So to all my evangelical reparationist friends out there, please stop using Zacchaeus as the poster child of your reparationist apologetic because he does not apply. He does not. Please stop isogeting into that text in Luke 19. Your hopes and wishes, your visage of this uh, reparation apologetic that you hope will come to uh, fruition. Mm. He, do, he doesn't apply, so stop. Any thoughts on that, uh, on my comments there on Zacchaeus Omaha? That, th- those six reasons are, are basically a, a, an absolute mic drop. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a game over. This, this is, is so crystal clear uh, that, that anyone trying to use Zacchaeus uh, as, a, as, as a reason or rationale for some form of of reparations or some social justice aspect of payback, um, that that's that's not what's in play here. 
Um, I, I, I think this is this. I, I, I don't know that I could add anything to what you just laid out in these in these six uh, reasons why this should never be used again in that way. So, I mean, look. All right, let's be honest here, okay? Let's just be honest. The truth is that what was once decried and denounced, and rightly so, what was once decried and denounced as an immoral practice that for centuries was propagated in total disregard of the biblical principle of the Imago Dei, as recorded in Genesis one twenty-seven, is today being leveraged by many professing Christians as a means to materially enrich themselves, not on the objective basis of unjust suffering that they themselves actually experienced, but on Mm. the backs, on the backs of the unjust suffering experienced by others. They're leveraging the history of slavery as a means to enrich themselves, Mm. not on the basis of unjust suffering that they themselves actually experienced, but on the backs, on the legacy of the unjust suffering experienced by others. In other words, you owe me money, not because I suffered like those people, such as those from the slave narratives I quoted, but mm-hmm. because I look like them. Right. Now I want to quote Dr. Sowell once again from his book, The Quest for Cosmic Justice, which I highly recommend if you've not mm-hmm. read it. This mm-hmm. is again, I'm quoting Dr. Thomas Sowell from the book, The Quest for Cosmic Justice. Quote says, uh, sorry, Sol says this, quote, equality like justice is one of the most fateful and undefined words of our time. Whole societies can be and have been jeopardized by the passionate pursuit of this elusive notion. There is nothing wrong with equality in itself. In fact, there is much that is attractive about the idea. At the very least, glaring inequities are unattractive, even for those who accept them as either inevitable, like death, or as the lesser of alternative evils. But to equate the attractiveness of the concept with a mandate for public policy aimed at equality is to assume the politicizing that politicizing equality is free of costs and dangers, when in fact such politicization can have very high costs and very grave dangers. Mm-hmm. The abstract desirability of equality, like the abstract desirability of immortality, is beside the point when choosing what practical course of action to follow. Listen to how, how Sol closes this. Mm-hmm. What matters is what we are prepared to do to risk or to sacrifice in pursuit of what can turn out to be a mirage. Mm. Unquote. Wow. Did he nail wow. it or did he, he not? He nailed it. He he I mean he he always does. I like you. I I I want to highly recommend I mean any anything you can pick up from Thomas Sowell and begin reading I think is is will bless your life that the that book the quest for cosmic justice is i mean it, it should be should be mandatory reading uh especially especially if you if, if you're a if you're a homeschool parent you have homeschool children this is 
this is something that you know probably probably by the time they're in middle school they should be they should be looking through and 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 you should be having conversations about but this he 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 just nails it I, I love how he closes that what matters is what we're prepared to do to risk or to sacrifice in pursuit of what can turn out to be a mirage that's powerful mirage. Yeah. And remember, again, we quoted Soul at the very top. He talked about how dangerous it is to bring up, be, up the past because that could mm-hmm. be a means, he said, of keeping alive or reviving dissensions and animosities. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what's going on. That's exactly Soul what's said, happening. So, so what matters is what we're prepared to do to risk or to sacrifice in, po- in pursuit of what can turn out to be a mirage. Right. Um, you know, recently in the New York Times, there was an article, uh, an, an opinion piece, mm-hmm. I believe it was, that was written by a very, very widely respected columnist by the name of David Brooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe this article was published on March 7th, mm-hmm. uh, just a few days ago. Mm-hmm. It was titled The Case for Reparations. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Brooks of the New York Times the case for reparations subtitled a slow convert to the cause in that article by David Brooks, the case for reparations, he links to an article that was published in June of 2014 on the website, the Atlantic, the Atlantic, June of 2014, the Atlantic published an article article entitled the case for reparations, same title as Brooks's article, which was written by the gentleman by the name by a gentleman by the name of Tanihisi Coates. Tanihisi Coates. Coates serves as a national correspondent for the Atlantic, and he writes on matters of culture and politics. Coates's article, when it came out in 2014, was widely acclaimed, and it still is today to some degree. Mm-hmm. It was widely acclaimed for being one of the most erudite contemporary arguments for reparations made in recent years. In the article, Coates says this. Coates uh, says the following, quote, Reparations, by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and its consequences, is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. Wow. Wow. I want to read that one more time. It's a brief quote, but I want to read that one more time so that these were his words can resonate as listeners uh, hear my commentary on what he's, uh, what he's saying here. Tanahisi Coates says this in his article, the case for reparations quote reparations by which I mean the full acceptance of our collective biography and and its consequences is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices, more than a handout, a payoff, hush money, or a reluctant bribe. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal. (laughs) Now, there are several things that I find problematic with Coates' thinking. And I, I want to just mention three of them. First of all, what does Coates mean by, quote unquote, acceptance of our collective biography? What does he mean by that? I mean, uh, America's collective biography is its history as a nation. 
And sadly, slavery is a significant part of that history. It does not need to be accepted, as Coates suggests. It is history. And as Mm -hmm. history, it is inherently immutable. It can neither Mm -hmm. be accepted or rejected. It simply is. That's That's good. That's the first problem I have with what Coates is saying. We don't Mm -hmm. need to uh, accept our collective biography. It's history. It's fixed. It's unchangeable. It is immutable. As such, it doesn't need to be accepted or rejected. It is what it is. The second problem I have with Coates' thinking, what does Coates mean by seeing ourselves squarely? He uses the word squarely. What does he mean by that? Against what objective ethical or moral standard or definition will it be determined that we as a collective nation have attained to this square view of ourselves with regard to slavery? By what objective metrics would such a goal be determined to have been achieved? And conversely, what subsequently what subsequently would come next, if anything, and who would possess the authority to determine what that next step is? Coast says we need to see ourselves squarely. Paying reparations would allow our would allow us to see ourselves squarely. What does he mean by that? And mm-hmm. against what objective ethical moral standard will it be determined that we've done that? And then thirdly and lastly, to assume that the payment of reparations, whether viewed as what Coates uh, describes as payoff, hush money, or reluctant bribe, to assume that the payment of reparations will lead to a collective national reckoning, as, Co- as Coates describes it. To assume that the payment of reparations would lead to that national reckoning is naive and presumptive. Mm-hmm. For such reasoning is rooted in the presupposition that we all hold to the same ethical and moral paradigm to begin with, which we know is not the case. <laughs> not only that, such a rationale places a price tag on what can only be accomplished by the spirit of God in a person's heart as it relates to the spiritual renewal. Only the spirit of God working in a person's heart can accomplish that. You can't put a dollar amount on that. Any thoughts on that, Omaha? Brother, so much that's here with regard to this, to, to what he stated, acceptance of our collective biography. By whom? Who, who, who's, the, who's the representative that, that, that we go to? Where's the board? Who's the organization that we go to to say, our collective biography has now been accepted. You know, I mean, right. wh- wh- who's this person and, and where, and where do we find him or her or them? I mean, what does that look like? Um, exactly right. our- Listen, I, I can go to my neighbor here. Omar. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I can no, go to go my ahead. neighbor here. I can go to my neighbor next door. And if we have a disparate view of this issue, then our collective biography is shot. I mean, that argument is shot <laughs> just between two people. Right. So so the reality is this is this is this is empty language. This this actually means this totally, actually totally. this actually means nothing. And and it, it's for the purpose of sounding erudite, right? As they as they ascribed right. him to be, but but actually means nothing. It's a it's a massive virtue signal, right? Exactly by, right. Exactly by, right. Or as, as by, they say in uh as they say in Texas, all hat and no cattle. Right. <laughs> Right, right. Seeing ourselves squarely, well, that again, to the point you made, is going to have to deal with some with some standard, which leads right into the next one of payoff or or money or or, or a bribe. And when you begin to look at 
those kinds of issues with regard to money and numbers and that kind of thing. This, this thing gets really silly rather quickly. I mean, any any price that you would pay by folks who use this kind of language is going to be is going to be insufficient, right? And in the in the minds of some, it's going to be too little, too late. In uh, in the minds of others, it, it whatever whatever dis- decision you make on a, a payment. Um, is going to be what? Is that all you had? Is that is that you know? Is that is that is that what you think we're worth? Is that how you how you view things? I I I looked up the numbers because I wanted to get an idea mm-hmm. of of what things look like, and uh, so I pulled up some numbers. Uh, I looked at the fact that there were twelve point five million uh, blacks who were pulled from Africa between between fifteen twenty five and eighteen sixty six. Mm-hmm. And the transatlantic sla- sla- slave trade database seems to be is one of the most accurate assessments mm-hmm. of this. You can, you can find this by going to slavevoyages.org, slavevoyages.org. You made this point earlier in our conversation that only a, only a small percentage of those who were actually taken actually landed on American shores. Five percent. Uh, Five percent. Five percent. The 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 website had that tabulated at about three hundred and five thousand or so slaves. Mm-hmm. Now, to, today in the United States, based upon the 20, 2010 census, there are forty two point five million blacks in the United States. So I started looking through and trying to find where Democratic candidates who are running for president, where all of them ha- have have affirmed some form of reparation, but none mm-hmm. of them are actually attack attaching to it any dollar value or or amount mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the bottom the bottom line is is, is they recognize the absolute absolute absurdity of running mm-hmm. those kinds of numbers. Uh, now, there per- there was one there was okay. one okay there was one I can't recall her name right now, but I think she's being marketed as Oprah's one of Oprah's uh, you know uh, most trusted confidants or something like that. But anyway, she's running for president. And on the on the Democratic ticket, and she is campaigning under the uh, under the guise of wanting to offer one hundred billion dollars. That's not that doesn't even that doesn't even scratch the surface. If you start doing the numbers, man, that's that's a couple thousand bucks a person. I mean, it really yep. doesn't even it, it doesn't even it doesn't even amount to anything. Uh, the the bottom line, Daryl, I, I feel like these 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 candidates in particular, and those who advocate this position. Uh, outside of evangelicalism, just really believe black people are stupid. I mean, they they, they really yeah. believe that black people are stupid, and and, and they're using language that they know uh, elicits emotion for the purpose of gaining and obtaining power. It's now, the new forty acres and a mule. It's, it's, it's the it's new the forty new, acres and a mule. Absolutely, absolutely. What's most confusing to me about this, and and you've you've addressed it, and and you, you mentioned this in, in an earlier comment. I don't know if you recall it or not, but we, I was trying as as I thought about this this conversation, I was trying to assess what is the motivation of so called evangelical reparationists. I mean, is this is this anything more than just an empty virtue signal on their part? I mean, what what is it there? What I understand what these what what political candidates are trying to gain and obtain. I get it. Mm-hmm. But these evangelical reparationists, what what benefit is it in in, in their view? I mean, I, 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 is it that they've so bought into the world? I mean, I, I'm, I'm just at an absolute loss when I think about that. Listen, let me uh, let me just put it bluntly, okay? All right, that's how you do it, bro. There, there are a lot of evangelical reparationists out there who are black, who are racist, 
Uh, They're racist. They are racist in their heart. Mm. I hate to use the term racist. I don't buy into that term because I don't think it's a biblical term. Right. I think it's, it, I think it is a cultural term. Right. But for the sake of conversation, let's just go ahead and use the term. Mm-hmm. There are black evangelicals who profess to be Christian mm-hmm. who are racist in their heart. Wow. They hate white people. Mm-hmm. They hate them. Now, they won't come out and admit that, but they hate them. That, to answer your question, Verge, is the impetus for many of them in this whole conversation and discourse around reparations. Mm-hmm. They don't like white people. Right. But it's, it's you know, I, about that, I immediately go to First John, where John makes it clear that anyone Mm-hmm. who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you right. hate your brother? Brother, right. You can't love God whom you have not seen and, and hate your brother, brother who you who have seen. seen. Yeah. There are some black brothers and sisters out there right now. If you see, if you hear my voice going up in a notch or two, <laughs> it's because I'm so righteously indignant about the hypocrisy mm. of many of these black brothers and sisters who I call evangelical reparationists who know in their heart that their fellow image bearers of God who are of a lighter shade of melanin than they are, they hate them. Mm. So just like they're trying to transfer the guilt, the, the guilt of supposed sins of their forebearers, they're also transferring to them the hate that they harbor in their heart toward their forebearers. Mm. And there's some sin among that particular demographic of the church that needs to confess and repent. That's good, buddy. Of the sin of hating their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's good. They need to repent. They know yeah. who they are. I don't need to name names. You mm-hmm. know who you are. Mm-hmm. You know who you are. Now, I want to end our discussion on reparations by again quoting from Dr. Thomas Sowell's book, Discrimination and Disparities. Discrimination and Disparities, which I think offers a solid antithesis to the pro-reparationist apologetic of people like Ta-Nehisi Coates and others who share his perspective on this issue. Mm-hmm. This is from Sowell's Discrimination and Disparities. Quote, Such wrongs as slavery abound in times and places around the world, inflicted on and perpetuated by people of virtually every race, creed, and color. Mm. But what can any society today hope to gain by having newborn babies in that society enter the world as heirs to prepackaged grievances wow. against other babies born into that same society on the same day. Mm-hmm. Soul continues, nothing that we can do today can undo the many evils and catastrophes of the past, but we can at least learn from them and not repeat the mistakes of the past, many of which began with lofty sounding goals. Mm-hmm. Obvious as all this might seem, it is too often forgotten. Nothing that Germans can do today will in any way mitigate the staggering evils of what Hitler did in the past. 
nor can apologies in America today for slavery in the past have any meaning, much less do any good for either blacks or whites today. Mm-hmm. What can it mean for A, okay, what can it mean for A to apologize for what B did, even among contemporaries, much less across the vast chasm between the living and the dead? Mm-hmm. The only times over which we have any degree of influence at all are the present and the future, both of which can be made worse by attempts at symbolic restitution among the living for what happened among the dead, who are far beyond our power to help or punish or avenge. Mm. Galling as these restrictive facts may be, That does not stop them from being facts beyond our control. Pretending to have powers that we do not, in fact, have risks creating needless evils in the present while claiming to deal with the evils of the past. Sol closes his comments with this. Any serious consideration of the world as it is around us today must tell us that maintaining common decency, much less peace and harmony among living contemporaries is a major challenge, both among nations and within nations. To admit that we can do nothing about what happened among the dead is not to give up the struggle for a better world, Mm. but to concentrate our efforts where they have at least some hope of making things better for the living. That's good. That's good. That's good. Man, that's, that's really, really good. I know this is a lengthier episode for our listeners. I'm glad you stuck with us to the end. My hope, uh, and I know the hope of Daryl's as well, is that this is beneficial, that it's edifying to you, that it is helpful uh, to you uh, to have uh, ongoing conversation to understand the issue from a biblical perspective. As we mentioned at the very top, it takes some time to really exegete not only the text of scripture, but the topics that we undertake. And we know that those who listen uh, to the broadcast are are interested in having that, that type of exercise. So I want to thank you for joining us. Tune in to us next week for another ed- edition of the Just Thinking Broadcast. <music>